Wednesday, February 16th, 1944. Peter and I hadn't talked to each other all day, except for a few meaningless words. It was too cold to go up to the attic. In any way, it was Margaret's birthday. At 12.30, he came to look at the presents and hung around chatting longer than was strictly necessary, something he'd never have done otherwise. But I got my chance in the afternoon. Since I felt like spoiling Margaret on her birthday, I went to get the coffee, and after that the potatoes. When I came to Peter's room, he immediately took his papers off the stairs, and I asked if I should close the trap door to the attic. Sure, he said, go ahead. When you are ready to come back down, just knock and I'll open it for you. I thanked him, went upstairs and spent at least ten minutes searching around in the barrel for the smallest potatoes. My back started aching, and the attic was cold. Naturally, I didn't bother to knock out open the trapdoor myself, but he obligingly got up and took the pan out of my hands. I did my best, but I couldn't find any smaller ones. Did you look in the big barrel? Yes, I've been through them all. By this time, I was at the bottom of the stairs, and he examined the pan of potatoes he was still holding. Oh, but these are fine, he said, and added, as I took the pan from him, my compliments. As he said this, he gave me such a warm, tender look that I started glowing inside. I could tell he wanted to please me, but since he couldn't make a long complimentary speech, he said everything with his eyes. I understood him so well and was very grateful. It still makes me happy to think back to those words and that look. When I went downstairs, Mother said she needed more potatoes, this time for dinner, so I volunteered to go back up. When I entered Peter's room, I apologized for disturbing him again. As I was going up the stairs, he stood up, went over to stand between the stairs and the wall, grabbed my arm and tried to stop me. I'll go, he said. I have to go upstairs anyway. I replied that it wasn't really necessary, that I didn't have to get only the small ones this time. Convinced, he let go of my arm. On my way back, he opened the trap door and once again took the pen from me. Standing by the door, I asked, what are you working on? French, he replied. I asked if I could take a look at his lessons. Then I went to wash my hands and sat down across from him on the divan. After I'd explained some French to him, we began to talk. He told me that after the war, he wanted to go to the Dutch East Indies and live on a rubber plantation. He talked about his life at home, the black market, and how he felt like a worthless bum. I told him he had a big inferiority complex. He talked about the war, saying that Russia and England were bound to go to war against each other, and about the Jews. He said life would have been much easier if he'd been a Christian or could become one after the war. I asked if he wanted to be baptized, but that wasn't what he meant either. He said he'd never be able to feel like a Christian, but that after the war, he'd make sure nobody would know he was Jewish. I felt a momentary pang. It's such a shame he still has a touch of dishonesty in him. Peter added, the Jews have been and always will be the chosen people. I answered, just as once. I hope they'll be chosen for something good. But we went on chatting very pleasantly, about father, about judging human character and all sorts of things, so many that I can't even remember them all. I left at a quarter past five because Bab had arrived. That evening he said something else I thought was nice. We were talking about the picture of a movie star I'd once given him, which has been hanging in his room for at least a year and a half. He liked it so much that I offered to give him a few more. No, he replied, I'd rather keep the one I've got. I look at it every day, and the people in it have become my friends. 
I now have a better understanding of why he always hugs Moshi so tightly. He obviously needs affection too. I forgot to mention something else he was talking about. He said, "No, I'm not afraid, except when it comes to things about myself. But I'm working on that." Peter has a huge inferiority complex. For example, he always thinks he's so stupid and we're so smart. When I help him with French, he thanks me a thousand times. One of these days, I'm going to say, "Oh, cut it out! You're much better in English and geography." And Frank. Thursday, February seventeenth, nineteen forty-four. Dear Kitty, I was upstairs this morning since I promised Mrs. Van D I'd read her some of my stories. I began with Eva's dream, which she liked a lot, and then I read a few passages from the Secret Annex, which had her in stitches. Peter also listened for a while and asked if I'd come to his room sometime to read more. I decided I had to take a chance right then and there, so I got my notebook and let him read that bit where Caddy and Hans talk about God. I can't really tell what kind of impression it made on him. He said something I don't quite remember, not about whether it was good, but about the idea behind it. I told him I just wanted him to see that I didn't write only amusing things. He nodded, and I left the room. We'll see if I hear anything more. Yours and Frank. Friday, February eighteenth, nineteen forty-four. My dearest Kitty, whenever I go upstairs, it's always so I can see him. Now that I have something to look forward to, my life here has improved greatly. At least the object of my friendship is always here, and I don't have to be afraid of rivals. Don't think I'm in love because I'm not, but I do have the feeling that something beautiful is going to develop between Peter and me—a kind of friendship and a feeling of trust. I go see him whenever I get the chance, and it's not the way it used to be. When he didn't know what to make of me, on the contrary, he's still talking away. And as I'm heading out the door, Mother doesn't like me going upstairs. She always says I'm bothering Peter and that I should leave him alone. Honestly, can't she credit me with some intuition? She always look at me so oddly when I go to Peter's room. When I come down again, she asks me where I've been. It's terrible, but I'm beginning to hate her. Yours and Frank. Saturday, February nineteenth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, it's Saturday again, and that should tell you enough. This morning all was quiet. I spent nearly an hour upstairs making meatballs, but I only spoke to him in passing. When everyone went upstairs at two thirty to either read or take a nap, I went downstairs with blanket and all to sit at a desk and read or write. Before long, I couldn't take it any more. I put my head in my arms and sobbed my heart out. The tears streamed down my cheeks, and I felt desperately unhappy. Oh, if only he had come to comfort me! It was past four by the time I went upstairs again. At five o'clock, I set off to get some potatoes, hoping once again that we'd meet. But while I was still in the bathroom fixing my hair, he went to see Bosch. I wanted to help Mrs. Fandy and went upstairs with my book and everything. But suddenly, I felt the tears coming again. I raced downstairs to the bathroom, grabbing the hand mirror on the way. I sat there on the toilet, fully dressed. Long after I was through, my tears leaving dark spots on the red of my apron, and I felt utterly dejected. Here's what was going through my mind: Oh, I'll never reach Peter this way. Who knows? Maybe he doesn't even like me, and he doesn't need anyone to confide in. Maybe he only thinks of me in a casual sort of way. I'll have to go back to being alone, without anyone to confide in, and without Peter, without hope, comfort, or anything to look forward to. Oh, if only I could rest my head on his shoulder and not feel so hopelessly alone and deserted. Who knows? Maybe he doesn't care for me at all and look at the others in the same tender way. Maybe I only imagined it was specially for me.
Oh, Peter, if only you could hear me or see me. If the truth is disappointing, I won't be able to bear it. A little later, I felt hopeful and full of expectation again, though my tears were still flowing on the inside. Yours and Frank. Sunday, February twentieth, nineteen forty-four. What happens in other people's houses during the rest of the week happens here in the annex on Sundays. While other people put on their best clothes and go strolling in the sun, we scrub, sweep, and do the laundry. Eight o'clock. Though the rest of us prefer to sleep in, Duso gets up at eight. He goes to the bathroom, then downstairs, then up again, and then to the bathroom, where he devotes a whole hour to washing himself. Nine thirty. The stoves are lit. The blackout screen is taken down, and Mister Van Dan heads for the bathroom. One of my Sunday morning ordeals is having to lie in bed and look at Duso's back when he's praying. I know it sounds strange, but a praying Duso is a terrible sight to behold. It's not that he cries or gets sentimental, not at all. But he does spend a quarter of an hour, an entire fifteen minutes, rocking from his toes to his heels, back and forth, back and forth. It goes on forever. And if I don't shut my eyes tight, my head starts to spin. Ten fifteen. The Van Dans whistle. The bathroom's free. In the Frank family quarters, the first sleepy faces are beginning to emerge from their pillows. Then everything happens fast, fast, fast. Margaret and I take turns doing the laundry. Since it's quite cold downstairs, we put on pants and head scarves. Meanwhile, Farah is busy in the bathroom. Either Margaret or I have a turn in the bathroom at eleven, and then we're all clean. Eleven thirty. Breakfast. I don't dwell on this since there's enough talk about food without my bringing the subject up as well. Twelve fifteen. We each go our separate ways. Father, clad in overalls, gets down on his hands and knees and brushes the rug so vigorously that the room is enveloped in a cloud of dust. Mister Duso makes the beds, always whistling the same Beethoven violin concerto as he goes about his work. Mother can be heard shuffling around the attic as she hangs up the washing. Mister Van Dan puts on his hat and disappears into the lower regions, usually followed by Peter and Mushy. Mrs. Van Dee dons a long apron, a black wool jacket and overshoes, winds a red wool scarf around her head, scoops up a bundle of dirty laundry, and with a well-rehearsed washerwoman's nod, heads downstairs. Margaret and I do the dishes and straighten up the room. Wednesday, February twenty-third, nineteen forty-four. My dearest Kitty, the weather's been wonderful since yesterday, and I've perked up quite a bit. My writing, the best thing I have, is coming along well. I go to the attic almost every morning to get the stale air out of my lungs. This morning, when I went there, Peter was busy cleaning up. He finished quickly and came over to where I was sitting on my favorite spot on the floor. The two of us looked out at the blue sky, the bare chestnut tree glistening with dew, the seagulls and other birds glinting with silver as they swooped through the air, and we were so moved and entranced that we couldn't speak. He stood with his head against a thick beam while I sat. We breathed in the air, looked outside, and both felt that the spell shouldn't be broken with words. We remained like this for a long while, and by the time he had to go to the loft to chop wood, I knew he was a good, decent boy. He climbed the ladder to the loft, and I followed. During the fifteen minutes he was chopping wood, we didn't say a word either. I watched him from where I was standing and could see he was obviously doing his best to chop the right way and show off his strength. But I also looked out the open window, letting my eyes roam over a large part of Amsterdam, over the rooftops and on to the horizon. A strip of blue so pale it was almost invisible. As long as this exists, I thought, this sunshine and this cloudless sky, and as long as I enjoy it, how can I be sad? 
The best remedy for those who are frightened, lonely, and unhappy is to go outside, somewhere they can be alone, alone with the sky, nature, and God. For then, and only then, you can feel that everything is as it should be, and that God wants people to be happy amid nature's beauty and simplicity. As long as this exists, and that should be forever, I know that there will be solace for every sorrow, whatever the circumstances. I firmly believe that nature can bring comfort to all who suffer. Oh, who knows? Perhaps it won't be long before I can share this overwhelming feeling of happiness with someone who feels the same as I do. Yours and P.S. Thoughts to Peter. We've been missing out on so much here, so very much, and for such a long time. I miss it just as much as you do. I'm not talking about external things, since we're well provided for in that sense. I mean the internal things, like you. I long for freedom and fresh air. But I think we've been amply compensated for their loss. On the inside, I mean. This morning, when I was sitting in front of the window and taking a long, deep look outside at God and nature, I was happy, just plain happy. Peter, as long as people feel that kind of happiness within themselves, the joy of nature, health, and much more besides, they'll always be able to recapture that happiness. Riches, prestige, everything can be lost, but the happiness in your own heart can only be dimmed. It will always be there as long as you live to make you happy again. Whenever you are feeling lonely or sad, try going to the loft on a beautiful day and looking outside, not at the houses and the rooftops, but at the sky. As long as you can look fearlessly at the sky, you know that you are pure within and will find happiness once more. Sunday, February twenty seventh, nineteen forty four. My dearest Kitty, from early in the morning to late at night, all I do is think about Peter. I fall asleep with his image before my eyes, dream about him, and wake up with him still looking at me. I have the strong feeling that Peter and I aren't really as different as we may seem on the surface, and I'll explain why. Neither Peter nor I have a mother. His is too superficial, likes to flirt, and doesn't concern herself much with what goes on in his head. Mine takes an active interest in my life, but has no tact, sensitivity, or motherly understanding. Both Peter and I are struggling with our innermost feelings. We're still unsure of ourselves and are too vulnerable emotionally to be dealt with so roughly. Whenever that happens, I want to run outside or hide my feelings. Instead, I bang the pots and pans, splash the water, and am generally noisy, so that everyone wishes I were miles away. Peter's reaction is to shut himself up, say little, sit quietly, and daydream, all the while carefully hiding his true self. But how and when will we finally reach each other? I don't know how much longer I can continue to keep this yearning under control. Yours and Frank. Monday, February twenty-eighth, nineteen forty-four. My dearest Kitty, it's like a nightmare. When that goes on long after I'm awake, I see him nearly every hour of the day, and yet I can't be with him. I can't let the others notice, and I have to pretend to be cheerful, though my heart is aching. Peter Shiv and Peter Fandan have melted into one Peter, who's good and kind, and whom I long for desperately. Mother's horrible, father's nice, which makes him even more exasperating. And Margaret's the worst, since she takes advantage of my smiling face to claim me for herself when all I want is to be left alone. Peter didn't join me in the attic, but went up to the loft to do some carpentry work. And every rasp and bang, another chunk of my courage broke off, and I was even more unhappy. In the distance, a clock was tolling. Be sure in heart, be pure in mind. I'm sentimental, I know. I'm despondent and foolish. I know that too. Oh, help me, yours and Frank. Wednesday, March first, nineteen forty-four. 
Dearest Kitty, my own affairs have been pushed to the background by a break-in. I'm boring you with all the break-ins, but what can I do when burglars take such pleasure in honoring Geese and Co with their presence? This incident is much more complicated than the last one in July 1943. Last night at 7:30, Mr. Van Den was heading as usual for Mr. Kugler's office when he saw that both the glass door and the office door were open. He was surprised, but he went on through and was even more astonished to see that the closed doors were open as well, and that there was a terrible mess in the front office. There's been a burglary. Flashed through his mind, but just to make sure, he went downstairs to the front door, checked the lock, and found everything closed. Ben and Peter must just have been very careless this evening, Mister Van Dee concluded. He remained for a while in Mister Kugler's office, switched off the lamp, and went upstairs without worrying much about the open doors or the messy office. Early this morning, Peter knocked at our door to tell us that the front door was wide open and that the projector and Mr. Kugler's new briefcase had disappeared from the closet. Peter was instructed to lock the door. Mr. Van Dan told us his discoveries of the night before, and we were extremely worried. The only explanation is that the burglar must have had a duplicate key, since there were no signs of a forced entry. He must have sneaked in early in the evening, shut the door behind him, hidden himself when he heard Mr. Van Den, fled with the loot after Mr. Van Den went upstairs, and in his hurry, not bothered to shut the door. Who could have our key? Why didn't the burglar go to the warehouse? Was it one of our own warehouse employees? And will he turn us in now that he's heard Mr. Van Den and maybe even seen him? It's really scary since we don't know whether the burglar will take it into his head to try and get in again. Or was he so startled when he heard someone else in the building that he'll stay away? Yours and P.S. We'd be delighted if you could hunt up a good detective for us. Obviously, there's one condition: he must be relied upon not to inform on people in hiding. Thursday, March second, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, Margaret and I were in the attic together today. I can't enjoy being there with her the way I imagine it be with Peter. I know she feels the same about most things as I do. While doing the dishes, Beth began talking to Mother and Mrs. Van Den about how discouraged she gets. What help did those who offer her? Our tactless mother, especially, only make things go from bad to worse. Do you know what her advice was? That she should think about all the other people in the world who are suffering. How can thinking about the misery of others help if you are miserable yourself? I said as much. Their response, of course, was that I should stay out of conversations of this sort. The grown-ups are such idiots. As if Peter, Margaret, Beb, and I didn't all have the same feelings. The only thing that helps is a mother's love, of that of a very, very close friend. But these two mothers don't understand the first thing about us. Perhaps Mrs. Fandan does a bit more than mother. Oh, I wish I could have said something to poor Beb. Something that I know from my own experience would have helped. But father came between us, pushing me roughly aside. They are all so stupid. I also talked to Margaret about father and mother, about how nice it could be here if they weren't so aggravating. We'd be able to organize evenings in which everyone could take turns discussing a given subject. But we've already been through all that. It's impossible for me to talk here. Mister Van Den goes on the offensive. Mother gets sarcastic and can't say anything in a normal voice. Father doesn't feel like taking part, nor does Mister Dusso. And Missus Van Dee is attacked so often that she just sits there with a red face, hardly able to put up a fight any more. And what about us? We aren't allowed to have an opinion. My my, 
Aren't they progressive? Not have an opinion. People can tell you to shut up, but they can't keep you from having an opinion. You can't forbid someone to have an opinion, no matter how young they are. The only thing that would help Bab, Margaret, Peter, and me would be great love and devotion, which we don't get here. And no one, especially not the idiotic sages around here, is capable of understanding us, since we are more sensitive and much more advanced in our thinking than any of them ever suspect. Love. What is love? I don't think you can really put it into words. Love is understanding someone, caring for him, sharing his joys and sorrows. This eventually includes physical love. You've shared something, given something away, and received something in return. Whether or not you're married, whether or not you have a baby, losing your virtue doesn't matter. As long as you know that, for as long as you live, you'll have someone at your side who understands you and who doesn't have to be shared with anyone else. Yours and Frank. At the moment, mother's scratching at me again. She's clearly jealous because I talk to Mrs. Fandan more than to her. What do I care? I managed to get hold of Peter this afternoon, and we talked for at least forty-five minutes. He wanted to tell me something about himself, but didn't find it easy. He finally got it out, though it took a long time. I honestly didn't know whether it was better for me to stay or to go, but I wanted so much to help him. I told him about Bab and how tactless our mothers are. He told me that his parents fight constantly about politics and cigarettes and all kinds of things. As I've told you before, Peter's very shy, but not too shy to admit that he'd been perfectly happy not to see his parents for a year or two. My father isn't as nice as he looks, he said, but in the matter of the cigarettes, mother's absolutely right. I also told him about my mother, but he came to father's defense. He thought he was a terrific guy. Tonight, when I was hanging up my apron after doing the dishes, he called me over and asked me not to say anything downstairs about his parents having had another argument and not being on speaking terms. I promised, though I'd already told Margaret, but I'm sure Margaret won't pass it on. Oh no, Peter! I said, "You don't have to worry about me. I've learned not to blab everything I hear. I never repeat what you tell me." He was glad to hear that. I also told him what terrible gossips we are, and said Margaret's quite right, of course, when she says I'm not being honest. Because as much as I want to stop gossiping, there's nothing I like better than discussing with to do so. It's good that you admit it, he said. He blushed, and his sincere compliment almost embarrassed me too. Then we talk about upstairs and downstairs some more. Peter was really rather surprised to hear that I don't like his parents. Peter, I said, you know I'm always honest. So why shouldn't I tell you this as well? We can see their faults too. I added, Peter, I'd really like to help you. Will you let me? You're caught in an awkward position, and I know, even though you don't say anything, that it upsets you. Oh, your help is always welcome. Maybe it'd be better for you to talk to Father. You can tell him anything. He won't pass it on. I know he's a real pal. You like him a lot, don't you? Peter nodded, and I continued. Well, he likes you too, you know. He looked up quickly and blushed. It was really touching to see how happy these few words made him. You think so? He asked. Yes, I said. You can tell him the little things he lets slip now and then. Then Mr. Van Den came in to do some dictating. Peter's a terrific guy, just like father. Yours and Frank.